Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we're the quantum mechanics. We're the podcast that delves under the hood of the strange and the unexplained. And today, uh, Ben and I are going to be continuing our look at a topic that I guess we didn't expect to be doing so many episodes on, but it's just so fascinating, has intrigued us so much, and that is remote viewing. Uh, We started by giving a little bit of a history of how remote viewing uh, started and how it was used within the US military in a secret unit that basically had psychic spies. We did some tests ourselves to see if we had any ability. Uh, I think my summary would be I had some. Ben is definitely uh, a remote viewer of the future. We also did a great interview uh, with a remote viewer called Daz Smith, who also wrote a great book about the military programme known as Stargate. But I guess the one bit, Ben, that we were really wanting to get and could really complete our look at this topic would be to interview someone who was actually part of the US military secret programme of remote viewing and psychic spies. And I believe we've got someone who fits that description today, right? Yeah, that's right. So probably the thing that, like, as we uh, embarked on this podcast project, what we have endeavoured to do is try to find uh, the sort of, I guess, the science and the reality behind uh, the YouTube... The hype, maybe. The hype, right, right, right. And... The place to start with all of that, it always seems like it would be the military. And so today's guest, Paul H. Smith, in 2005, wrote a book called Reading the Enemy's Mind. And what he catalogues in that book is his experience with the US military's project called Stargate, which started in the early 70s and was a remote viewing project that was kind of really key to various parts of the Cold War. And what we're going to ask him about not only is about uh, how he got into it and what he did within it, but also its impact on the geopolitical landscape of the 70s, 80s and 90s. Yep. What's it like to be a psychic spy and how did it change the world, I guess, in some yeah. ways, is what we're looking for. Exactly. Um, really looking forward to speaking to him and really glad to welcome Paul H. Smith to the podcast. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you here. I have spent the last, I would say, nine days reading your book reading the enemy's mind inside stargate and i was incredibly surprised by what i what i read it really comes across as before your journey into remote viewing and the intelligence agencies and everything you got involved with you had what you might sort of call a classical life you were married and you were looking for a job is that a fair way to put it you're right that pretty well i mean i still had some unusual experiences in terms of you know working on farms and in the mountains and and uh 
doing a uh, Mormon mission in Switzerland, you know, those, those things, most people today don't have those kind of experiences, you know, but overall it was a, a conventional life and I had nothing bizarre or weird happened in it. So, okay. So what, so you weren't embarking on a career where you thought something unusual and remarkable would happen to you. You felt at the beginning of your career, you were getting into something where you would have a American, military life that's right um i had actually enlisted to be an arabic linguist because i was interested in middle eastern studies and uh the university i was going to at the time byu didn't offer arabic i'd taken all their hebrew classes but I hadn't had any arabic the army offered to pay me for arabic for, for to learn arabic which was way better than me paying the school to learn arabic <laughs> and so and, and it just you know people are always thanking me for my service when i find out i'm retired military but i tell them I really feel bad being thanked for it because the army kept giving me all these fun things to do. I had a blast while I was in the army, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and in, in a way it wasn't, I mean, there were of course moments of sacrifice going, you know, I've been married for three months before I went off to desert storm. We get married. My wife gets three instant uh, stepchildren. And then I go away for a year, you know, that, that was, well, let's just say there were some, uh, some moments of dismay. <laughs> I, you know, I had anticipated exactly as you said, having a normal kind of, well, as normal as it gets, military kind of career. Yeah. And and in your book, you, you spend a few pages describing, uh, I suppose I would call it, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, almost the, re the, the revelation, which was basic training, which turned out to be quite, quite difficult. Mm-hmm. It was difficult and yet profound. I mean, somebody, there's so many people today have never been in the military. Um, and it may be different in other countries. In the U.S. military, we have this legacy mm. of, you know, defending freedom and all that kind of thing. Mm. And and for the military people, it's actually really quite true. They they, But I didn't have that necessarily when I go in. I didn't expect to get that when I got in. And I get a little emotional about it, you know. Um yeah. Basic training was really kicked my butt. <laughs> it did. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, it was a very, it was almost an epiphany because all of a sudden I said, Oh, I get it. And I get it. I got what I never got before. And of course the military continued to reinforce that. Although to be honest, the military is like any other job. You get cynical people, you get annoying people, you get stupid people, you get brilliant people, you know? So you know, that, that moderated my feelings, but basic training was just a huge eye opener for me in terms of understanding what the whole point was. Right. Right. And, and you, you also wrote a line in the book, which, um, really stood out to me. You spoke about how in those early days, it's a little bit after you talk about your basic training, but you talk about how, uh, there are spies for the Soviet union, but there are spies for the U.S. who are working in the Soviet Union, and you talk about how they are doing it altruistically rather than for for money or for any personal gain. And you all you write what sort of made me feel sad—a disparaging sentence that you don't think that's true anymore—and that made me a little bit sad. Well, you know, I think. <clears throat> So I owe part of that insight to uh, a friend of mine in human intelligence, human, uh, a guy named John Nolan. He's, he's, he's an amazing guy. Um, 
he said, he told me one day, he said, you know, the people I deal with, you know, he was a case officer and all that. And so he said, the people I deal with, they're spying for the, for us against Western Bloc, they're doing it because they really feel that the system is killing their countries and they, they, they want a better world for their fellow countrymen, you know? So they were doing it altruistically. He said, um, um, the people, uh, let's see, how do we go? The people that are spying for the Soviets in the United States. And I think of people like Alder Sames and Hanson, I forget his first name. You know, there's a whole bunch of these guys. Those guys are doing it just for the money. And you right. can see in one way, the corrupt system, the Soviet Union inspired people yeah. trying to change right. that. I see. But in the other hand, the allegedly non-corrupt system here in the United States, people were supporting the other side just for corrupt reasons. <laughs> right. <laughs> I see. Interesting and bizarre irony. And uh, yeah, and these days, of course, everybody seems to be getting corrupt. You know, there's mm. a few cases. It may be the, the folks who are spying for the Chinese. Maybe some of them are doing it altruistically. Although some of them are, are being blackmailed to do it, you know, mm. by the Chinese. And um I don't know. It's just a much more complicated and much, in some ways, maybe not as good a world as we even had during the the Cold War. So yeah, I don't know. Well, the the reason I mention that, apart from my own personal feelings, where, as I say, I was, I was disappointed to read it, but also thoroughly agreed with you, was it felt like. After your basic training and you went through the first part of your military career, your attraction to the intelligence services was absolutely driven by not just the personal career, but the sort of the things that you'd taken out of the personal, the, the uh, basic training, that kind of uh, uh, feeling that you were doing good. Mm -hmm. So... Once you once you had a little feeling that you would get into um, the intelligence services, what what did what was it that drove you forward? Is it was it a sense of um, sort of patriotism, or or was it a, a sense of driving your own career, or was it a wee bit of both? You know, I think some people when they join the military, like after nine eleven, it's it's a very much a act of patriotism. And then they get in and realize there's, it's more complicated than that. Right? right, right. And that's the way it was with me. You know, um, I didn't join up as an act of patriotism. It was kind of mercenary. I wanted to learn Arabic and I couldn't afford to, to pay for it myself. Right. Mm. So, so I went out on those grounds. Then I discovered there was a cause here worth supporting. And then when I got into the real military, my motivations then again got a little more complicated. I still felt this sense of serving my country and that, uh, and that time, and even still today, but it's been modified somewhat by our current president, um, even still today, I feel like ultimately the United States can be a great benefit to the world. Um, it's got a checkered career in recent years, unfortunately. But um, I felt like that when I was on active duty, that you know we were accomplishing something worthwhile and it was valuable. But I also was in it for the adventure, you know. Uh, as I said, every time I thought about getting out, they'd come along and offer me something even more fun to do. <laughs> so, so that's how I ended up with a career. I didn't intend to have a career to start with. You know, I was just going to go in and learn Arabic, get my, my first tour done and then go on to academia, but that's not what happened. So, um, 
adventure was a big part of it. Um, there's a certain sense of security in the in the army too. There's a real community there. You have something in common with everybody you're serving with that you don't have in common with the civilian community. Um, and they, of course, they do actually take fairly decent care of you from a healthcare perspective. And you'll always have a place to live. You'll always have food on the table, you know. So there, there's that security issue too that's valuable. But that was probably a smaller thing. Uh, if I'd been single, it wouldn't have been a big issue at all. Uh, I did have to worry about my kids and my wife and all that. Um, yeah. And just a sense of doing new things and seeing what other th- uh, what else there is out there, you know, and, and seeing the world, which I did see a big chunk of it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, and, and that comes across. It, it does come in, in the story that you tell. It does come out that you're – uh, the altruistic part of you as as is thinking about your family and your wife and making sure that they are provided for. But as you get into the intelligence services, you start off, and again, there's there's nothing paranormal about it, right? You find yourself doing uh, what you would expect to do. Just um, and and you used uh, a term earlier. So early in the book, you introduce. Uh, SIGINT, HUMINT, and uh, sorry, I've forgotten what the other one is. Right, right, right. And and so these are three different ways of obtaining intelligence conventionally, right? Right. And then one day, if I if I read this correctly, you are at a community gathering. Uh, I I remember it in the book as a barbecue, but that might just be because I'm obsessed with. Well, it's the it's the Maryland version of barbecue. It's a a crab uh, a crab bit. Oh, that's right. Yes, because you said that you don't like the ooze that comes out of the crabs when you're cracking them. Yes, and and uh, when I read that, I thought, yes, I'm with you there. I like the crab meat, but I don't like the internal organs. Yes. <laughs> um, but you you start interrogate well not interrogating but you start uh, sort of teasing at uh, uh, somebody at that uh, gathering about what it is that they're doing right. Well, what is it about interrogation you don't understand? <laughs> <laughs> okay, interrogating. <laughs> It's 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 the oozy bits he doesn't like. Uh, you like uh, I think that the way you describe it means that um, it seems like the other people think that they might be annoying you by teasing you, and they kind of relent and say, "Look, we can't really explain." Is that fair? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and so you you are left having had a conversation with some people at a crab cookout about what it is that they might do and you're left intrigued. Yes. So the two people were Skip Atwater, who I did not know at the time was the operations and the training officer for uh, the remote viewing program. And he was my next door. We shared a wall. We had these townhouses and we shared a wall um, the other guy was Tom McNair, who was hosting it, and he was literally kitty corner across the street from us, and he was a remote viewer in training. And of course, I didn't. I, at that point, I never put the words remote and viewing together in my yeah. ever, uh, and very few people ever had that weren't read on for it. You know, weren't access didn't have access to classified information. 
So, um, and I had access to it, but I didn't have a need to know, right? So you, you, it's more than just having a clearance. You also have to have a need to know before you know anything, right? Before right. you tell anything. And so I was curious to know what they did because Tom had this full beard and <laughs> Skip and he never wore uniforms. They always wore civilian clothes, even though the sign on the door said, Captain Tom McNair and Captain F. Holmes Atwater, right? <laughs> their, their, their formal name. Um so I'm, I'm wondering what they're doing. I figure it's some kind of human thing, but they weren't telling me about it. Uh, and so I asked that question. Well, what? You, you, I know you can't tell me what your, what your actual job is, but you can at least tell me what int, you know, what discipline you're in. I said, and I said, are you SIGINT? No. The, the logical question is human, because oftentimes case officers don't wear uniforms, you know, and they do grow their hair out or whatever. Well, are you human? No. Emmett? No. Well, there's one other one, Mazdant. I didn't ask him that because it wasn't a big thing back then. But but uh, I said, well, what int is it? And they said, well, something else. <laughs> I go, but that's all there is, <laughs> you know. And, right. uh, and I said, well, um, can you at least tell me if you do a lot of traveling? Because that would have tipped me off. It was maybe some kind of research thing or whatever. And they said no, and then Tom thought for a minute, and he said, well, sort of. <laughs> I go, sort of? What on earth does that mean? <laughs> you know, so right. that was where things started to, start, started to, to move. And, and even though you didn't know anything about what they were doing, you know, just the way you're describing it, it sounded like you were more than intrigued. Was there something you, you were almost kind of drawn to it, even at that stage? First of all, I'm naturally very curious. So intelligence work was really, you know, no matter what I want to do it, I always like to know what, what was behind things, right? Um, but I think looking back that I actually had some intuition that there was something here that I was supposed to pursue. And, right. uh, you know, and I hadn't had any psychic experiences. I wasn't even sure I believed in, in psychic. In fact, I think I explained in the book. It's been a while since I read my own book. Um, I'd been involved in the... And I've been interested in ESP as a kid, reading all these science fiction stories by authors who include science fiction in their work or uh, ESP in their in their work. Um, and then I'd uh, been a subject in a uh, junior high science experiment, but using the Zener cards, you know, with the wavy lines and the stars and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Total failure. Nobody got anything, and I probably got even less than nobody. But anyway, that had made me a bit of a skeptic about it. I thought, oh, this would be nice, but I don't believe in it. And so at Fort Meade, I'm kind of a skeptic about all this stuff, you know. They just, yeah. you know, I don't think it really works. I think it's all imagination, you know. And that was the mindset I was at at that point. So when when we go forward a little bit and you get invited into that world, and it's quite a, well, I think it's quite a stark invitation where, it's almost like if if you do this, then you can't tell anyone. Your career might be hindered. It's it's quite a warning, and so it's quite a leap to get into it. It must it must have been something that worried you when you got into it, right? Yes. Well, no. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> so so let me. Uh, so I'll use an analogy that I didn't have available back then, the movie Men in Black, right? So in 1983, the movie didn't exist. But the 
the read on scene where Tommy Lee Jones is reading on Will Smith to the Men in Black program. It's so bizarrely. I'm watching this on the movie thinking, that's what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> because they sent me down and said, you know, just like Tommy Lee Jones says, you have to sever all human connections. You have to have your fingertips erased or whatever, all this stuff, you know, all that. Kind of stuff. It wasn't the same exact thing, but similar, you know, you can't tell anybody what you're doing. Anybody who doesn't know you're in the army already, you can't tell them in your army, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm going, whoa, whoa. And then I said, okay, well, now, now after he said, that was a read-on statement, okay? So what it said was, if you're accepted to the program, this is what you're accept- agreeing to. Um, if you don't, if you aren't admitted in the program, this is the required confidentiality. So that part was like a non-disclosure agreement with penalty of imprisonment if you, if you violated it, right? Yeah. Which is standard for most, you know, classified information. So the second part didn't bother me. It was the first part that I had to think about. But I signed it because I knew that I, I would be able to say yes or no, and then they would have, those matter, things would apply or they wouldn't, right? So I signed it. And then Tommy says, uh, he's the one that read me on, the guy with the beard, right? <laughs> he says, um, what we do here is we collect uh, intelligence against foreign threats using a parapsychology discipline called remote viewing. Uh, we, we essentially want you to volunteer to become a psychic spy. And he said, uh, the, the further thing was, you don't have to tell me till tomorrow. You have, you have 24 hours to make this decision. And these are the things you can tell your wife. They realized they couldn't just do this totally in a vacuum. The spouses wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily go for that, right? These are things you can tell your wife. Um, and I don't recall what they were, but none of them involved DSP, right? There were stuff about, you know, this could be a major significant career change, all that kind of stuff. Right? So so I said, okay, so you have 24 hours to think about it. And I said, um, I don't need to. I want to sign up uh, or words to that effect. I'm, I'm on board or whatever, right? And he would look a little surprised because I think most people had said, I'm going to take the whole 24 hours to make this decision. But what he didn't know was in the roughly 30 seconds this unfolded, as soon as he said parapsychology program, you know, psychic spy, this calculation started. I used to be fascinated by ESP. I came to the conclusion it didn't work. He's telling me there's a line item in the federal budget that pays for this stuff, which means it's been vetted, which means it must really work. There's no way in heck that I'm not going to do this. Right. Right. (laughs) So, you know, it just all fell in place right then. Well, so that was quite a profound moment early on, right at the start, right? Before you'd even got your hands dirty, to want of a better phrase. But here's the interesting thing. I was excited, but I wasn't surprised. Wow. Which is why I said a minute ago, why I think I sort of already had a kind of intuition that something was going on. Yeah, because, you know, when you described the party or the the... the the crab bake, I think I've got the word right. Um, yeah, I, I forget what the official name is. <laughs> but the way you described and people looking and stuff like that, and then somebody said, no, it's a psychic remote view. It doesn't feel like the first thing that would jump into your head, that you'd, that you'd, that you'd feel shocked that it was that. But you, you, you felt comfortable and, like you said, almost if you knew. just seemed right, you know. Wow. So, yeah. And, and so... After you've agreed to do that, like, you must be thinking, what is my first day at work going to look like? I mean, that must be, that's a nuts first day at work. How did that work? Well, that was, I have to say, I was nervous about that. But you are any new job, right? 
But this one, I think I was a bit more nervous. I had no idea what it would look like. I mean, I knew what the office space looked like because I'd been in it one time before, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I had no idea what it would actually look like as a job. And I walk in and they give me a desk and it turned out to be the desk of Hartley Trent, who'd been a, a retired Navy guy who had been a, a remote viewer before me. And he had just died literally. In fact, he might not even have died quite yet. He had some kind of cancer and it was his desk. So that was a bit of a heavy moment for me too, to realize I was getting this guy who's a death door or maybe even dead by then. I don't remember, but, um, but yeah, that was a, in a way, it felt kind of like an honor, you know, to get okay. his desk. But, but still, it was a heavy thing, you know. And um, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, when when most people go into their first day at work, they realize that they've been trained for it. They've got a degree in whatever it is or, you know, they've performed some kind of experience. But that's that can't be true. You're going in there wondering whether this whether you can do this aren't you that was definitely an issue um and in fact they sort of they sort of hinted at that you know some people are successful at it some people aren't we think you have a high chance of being successful but you won't know till you try it right. you know where it come you know I, i'd done airborne training before i went off to europe and and jumping out of perfectly good airplanes you know that's not something that you that you think you can't do is something you think you'd be scared to death to do. But, but, but if you trip and fall out the door, you're going to go, you know, there's nothing, gravity is going to take over at that point. This was something different than that. Right. right. This was a, uh, this was something where you didn't even know if you had it in you to do it. I'm, I'm really fascinated of why, why they thought of you in that sense. I, I can't be just cause you were at that party, they must have seen something in you because maybe it's my perception of it. But I would imagine it's it's quite a difficult thing for a lot of the people in the military to even put the words psychic and military oh, yeah. application together. So they must have seen something in you, right? Nobody outside the program and a certain small penundra of, of people had any thoughts about psyche and military. I don't say nobody. There have been a couple of newspaper articles, a few newspaper articles, people who've gotten wind of this. Jack Anderson, I'll have to tell you the Jack Anderson story because there's a really interesting connection there, who's, you know, at the time, the dean of the uh, U.S. Um, investigative journalism world, right? He was famous back in the 80s and the 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, he had published I think I figured three or four articles on it in his column, but they were all got it all wrong. And I had not read any of them, you know, and most people in the military didn't pay attention either. So it was really not something that was on anybody's radar. Um, I had the good fortune of moving in next to Skipwater across the street from Tom McNair. Uh, when I say fortune, I think there probably was more to it. You know, I think that there are some, some things happening in the universe that, right. that moved me in that direction, but um, I'd be accused of magical thinking by the skeptics out there. <laughs> right? So um, I, uh, I happen to have, unbeknownst to me, most of the criteria they were looking for in a new recruit. And what they were doing at that time, they just led a new um, contract with uh, SRI, formerly Stanford Research Institute, which is this massive um, government supporting think tank out in California used to belong to Stanford University. 
um, they were the ones that are conducting the research. And so they had identified a bunch of characteristics. And one was, of course, that they had in their checklist was you had to be confident in your military career, which I was. Uh, you had to be above average intelligence, which despite some of the mistakes the intel community makes, most intelligence officers are. That's one of the requirements to get in is you got to be reasonably smart, you know, um, and plus have interests that were not necessarily um, typical in the military. Not that that was the, their criteria, but there were things that weren't necessarily findable in the military, like being involved in studio art, like painting or drawing or something, uh, right. music, you know, mu- uh, playing instruments and stuff, um, uh, creative writing. Uh, and languages, although there's a lot of uh, intel officers who do languages, obviously. So when they got to know me, they saw my art on the wall. I'd majored in, in college in art for until I switched majors, and I had illustrated uh, books and stuff. And so I had the art part of it down. Right. I'd been playing guitar for then about 20, 25 years. Um, I like to write short stories and send them off and get rejection slips from magazines, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I had studied, uh, I was fluent in German and I studied Arabic and Hebrew. So I hit all of those check boxes and they sort of said, well, we can't not try this guy out. (laughs) And do you think that is, is that something to do with, they, they look for those things because of that means you think in a different way or the way your brain's wired or. Yes. You know, to speak very roughly. And I know there's psychology will have a cow when I use these terms, but right brain, left brain specialization, Right. Right. That those kinds of things that's mentioned uh, tend to be more right brain processing, which appears to be uh, a highly functional aspect in remote viewing is that it tends to skew right brain. Um, and most Intel officers, frankly, are fairly left brained in their decision making processes and their processing. And I, and I literally struggled with that my entire military tr- career because I tend to be more, more right brain than left brain, although I function well left brain as well. But it made me not the best fit in the army all the time, because right. <laughs> I'm not particularly a linear thinker, and uh, oftentimes go off into these tangents, which turn out to be very productive. But but the left brain thinkers in the army just don't know how to follow that, you know. And so anyway, whatever, that that was the idea, yeah. And so, what was the first uh, sort of task that you were set, and how did that go? Yeah, so. It was what we call an outbounder. And an outbounder, what happens is you, the viewer, in a, in a closed room with a monitor, another person, in other words, uh, who is, helps guide you through the process. And neither of you know what the target's going to be. Okay, So then you have an outbound team, one or two or three people, who uh, you get acquainted with. And then they go out somewhere and they, they randomly select a target or a target is selected for them. And they go to that location and they interact as much as they can with the location. If it was like a merry-go-round, they might ride the horses or something, you know, around the circle, all that, whatever. And then the viewer's job is to go out somewhere in the world within half an hour, but somewhere in the world with the, the, the literally thousands of possible targets, home in on that team and try and experience the environment that they're in and then report that back in sketching and writing and stuff in this sealed room. Okay. According to the rules of science, that's a ridiculous thing to try. It doesn't work. Right. So my job as my first remote viewing site was an outbounder and uh, a couple of folks went out to a location, which I had no idea what it was. And there's actually funny, funny elements of this as well. 
So it turned out the target was this massive water tower. It's big blue. It's like one of those spider ones with all the pipes that come down all around the outside in the central pillar. It was huge, right? So they go there and they hug the pipes and they weave in and out amongst the stand up, the standing up things and they bang on the sides and all the stuff, right? And, and I'm getting there and, and my report was this. Well, I get the impression of this, uh, this kind of a room and there are these little tables and chairs and there's kind of a window over here and there's this kind of filtered pale light coming in and there's little curtains and, and there's a, uh, some kind of a cabin or something or it's got a, a, a glass thing and you can see little things behind it. And the walls are this kind of pebbly texture. It's kind of a off-white, kind of like the color behind, actually behind you, um, Ben, <laughs> kind of that color. And uh, and so I'm reporting all this. And of course, my monitor, who is Skip Atwater, he had no idea what the target was either. And so he said, okay, okay, write it down, put it down. So I did all right. Well, the outbound team comes back and they got a bag of donuts, you know, and we're eating the donuts. And they say, okay, well, it's time for your feedback. Okay. Pop in the car, and then the second part of an outbounder uh, is they take you to the location for your feedback wow. to verify what you get. We get to this water tower, big, huge, blue, cylindrical stuff, you know, mushroom top, all that stuff. Nothing. I got nothing. Okay. <laughs> I'm going, oh, crap, I, I'm, I'm going to be fired before I even get started, right? We get in the car, and we're tooling down the road back to Fort Meade, and I look over on the side, and I see this building, and I, I really felt drawn to it. I said, and Skip says, it doesn't matter what you get if you don't get the target. Right. And I go, what do you mean? He said, pull over there. So we pull over there. It was a donut shop. <laughs> <laughs> we walked in and there was the little spindly tables the curtains filtered light the yellow, you know off yellow mat kind of walls the little bumpies things counter up here with a glass and a bunch of donuts inside of it brilliant yeah my father-in-law said trust you to be the one that finds the donut <laughs> that must be the most expensive donut kind of yeah. recce in history right <laughs> <laughs> interesting thing about that was that even though I had missed the target, it was still really reinforcing because I knew that yeah. I had actually experienced that place. Um, I may have been, got the wrong one. I may have been undisciplined, right? But And they also realized we shouldn't have stopped that donut shop. That was dumb. We should have got the donuts afterwards, you know. But, but that, must have, that must have reaffirmed things for you because like you said you had this – it's funny because as you were talking earlier, it, it reminded because we've had quite a uh, what's the word? I'd describe it as a naive journey through remote viewing so far in the podcast that we've done. Um, and we started off going, well, like you were saying earlier, the military did this for like over 20 years or 20 years, roughly, and spent. Well, the military, yeah, tw about 20 years. And the program itself was 23 years long. Right. And. And spent millions of dollars on it. And like you, we were going, well, there's got to be something in it. And we, we kind of talked about it in the first episode. And then in the second, second episode, we did a, we were completely unprepared. We just threw ourselves into it. I think we described it as we were like a couple of kids on Christmas Day ripping open our Christmas presents. We just went for it and tried out some of the stuff. Yeah. And, but it had a real profound effect on us because... Ben, especially, I set the target of Mount Fuji, um, and I'd, I'd, I picked a, a photograph of Mount Fuji, 
And Ben, he, he got he drew two peaks, but not one peak. But his picture was pretty much exactly what I was looking at. And I'd given him no hint or whatever. And, I, and Ben sent me a target. I didn't quite do as well as him. But I felt something. It, it was like doing it, you know, and like you saying, okay, you missed the target you were going for, but you got something out of that. That was quite a profound moment, I think, for both of us. We both sat there and went, oh, my God, wow. Did it feel like that, even though you'd kind of missed the target? It did afterwards. Um, right. During the process, I didn't feel like I was actually, well, I, I, I was putting stuff down, but I didn't feel like it necessarily had anything to do with reality, you know? Right. Um, and that's usually, well, I won't say that's usually my case with remote viewing. Um, that's the way it was certainly at first. Now, if I really get into a session, I can sort of feel when I'm on and when I'm not. Right. But you can't use that as a good guide because very often viewers think they're not on and they end up being doing really well, right? It's all it's all very complex psychologically because you have the two hemispheres interacting. You have uh, your emotional system, which is largely right hemisphere, I think. Uh, but then there's other stuff below that. You know, all of this stuff is happening. And, and if your left brain gets too dominant, even if you've learned to suspend its belief, right, the right brain is still functioning, but you may not recognize that functioning until you're done. Other times, maybe when the right brain starts to get a little more, uh, you know, into the act in the con- in a conscious way, that's when you may actually start feeling or getting it. But you'll notice a lot of times out there, you'll get people who do remote viewing sessions. They're absolutely sure they're on. And they will argue with you even when you show them they're not. Right, right. <laughs> because right. they have this feeling, but it's largely left brain dom, you know, dominated. Because our left brain can also affect our emotions, right? Yeah. And uh, and it, it's it's they they felt so strongly that they were on that it doesn't matter what the evidence you give them that they weren't. They still are sure they're on. Of course, we see that that in the political world too. So, but we won't go there. <laughs> yeah. But but I, that. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say that that moment when you realize that you've seen something, even if it wasn't the target and experienced it, that night when you go to bed, you must have felt different to the morning when you woke up, surely. Um. Wow, that's I never thought about that. And that was a long time ago. Um. Yeah, I think, well, I think how I felt different was I still had doubts and worries about my ability to perform. Uh, but I think at least I was a little bit more reassured that that uh, that maybe it was going to work after all. I mean, when I went in there, I was, I I had actually by that point become fairly convinced, I don't want to say totally convinced, not as convinced as I became later, uh, fairly convinced based on the evidence I had that is, of course, some of the stuff I'd read leading up to that. So I'd been, I'd been on board a week or two, so I'd had a lot of books and stuff I had to go through. Um, I'd become kind of intellectually convinced it worked, but I didn't have, you know, still the confidence that it would work for me. Right? Uh, uh, what What was your oh my god moment where you you reached that point of oh my god, there's something definitely in this? Every time I have a successful session, I have that moment, and then it goes away. Right. <laughs> so right. back then what was the one that really persuaded me i can't tell you all right i don't know um but the, what what do you 
So was was there a moment where? So I suppose in today's terminology, um, people would call it imposter syndrome, where they think you know they just pretending to be doing something, and that you know that can be anyone. You're fooling everybody into thinking that you're competent. Right, right. But the there must have been a moment where you suddenly start to feel a bit of self confidence and go, okay, this isn't made up. This is real. And I have the ability. And do, I understand that that was probably a gradual thing. But did that sort of, was that another turning point in your career? Did you start to feel like, okay, this is me. I'm Paul H. Smith. I am a remote viewer. Yeah, I I would say that was gradually a gradually developed thing. Um, and it probably happened over the year the following year. So this, my first session was in September of 1983. Uh, in January of 84, we went to California, to Menlo Park, California at SRI to begin, begin original training, um, our, the start of our formal training. And then every month we go for two, two weeks of a, at a time to be training in California or in New York City. And um, the first while I was pretty nervous about it, uh, it was probably about halfway through that year that I started to feel some confidence. And then towards the latter half of the year, I started to get a lot of confidence because I was having some really good successes. Uh, so we would work with Ingo Swan, who is the one that created remote viewing and developed this system. Uh, we'd work with Ingo Swan and Hal Putoff contributed as well, who was the PhD researcher who oversaw the program. And, um, we go home and Skip Atwater would say, okay, you know, you're used to getting two weeks off in between, no more. <laughs> We're going to do some work here too. And so he worked me on some sessions and, and uh, I didn't have access to the ones Ingo I did with Ingo because he kept all of those, but I could get access to what Skip had did with, I mean, we'd get our feedback and everything. And I had some really blown out of the water moments uh, doing those sessions at, at the basic level at stage three level. Um, and that really got me confident that even though I didn't know from one time to another that it was going to work because remote viewing isn't a hundred percent thing. Um, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And even if you're doing your best job, sometimes it doesn't work. We don't know why, right? But generally the proportion of successes to failures was much higher than, uh, than I had expected to be. And so that's when I started to develop this kind of certainty that this really is, uh, not just a real thing, but something that I can actually do. And and during that time, um, so I think when we were talking to Daz Smith as well, he said that w when you get the results of a remote viewing session, you often need to back it up with other data. It's sort of an affirmation that what you suspect is probably correct or incorrect. But during that time, um, and, and I know in your book you've uh, sort of mentioned a few cases, but there are times when you, your work and the work of your colleagues made a real significant difference to the, the workings of the U.S. military and spy agencies, right? Yeah, I'm going to say not nearly as often as it should have, right? Right. And there are a couple reasons for that. Um, one is that... Um, 
Well, there's only really one reason for that. Well, no, there's two reasons. One is that you don't know all the time when you're actually on, as I said. And um, until you get some kind of corroboration or feedback, oftentimes, you won't know that. And often enough, what we produce was noise, not not actually useful information. Now, there's a couple of cases where it can be not useful information. One is, is where it is just noise. There's nothing in there. And some of our stuff was judged that way. I'm not going to deny that. Some of the stuff just was garbage, right? When I say garbage, we worked hard, but it just didn't produce useful, you know, useful information. Another case is where you actually produce accurate information, but it's information the customer already knows. Right. In which right. case, you've been a great psychic. You've been useless as far as an intelligence collector. I see. And pe- people in the civilian world don't understand that. They think, well, they failed. Well, we only failed because we produce information that they already knew. From a perspective of ESP, we were very successful, right? The process worked. It just yeah. wasn't the right outcome. Yeah. That's right. But, you know, that happens in all of the other intelligence fields as well. Sometimes intelligence collectors in the in the more traditional ends, we talked about SIGINT, EMIT, and, uh, and uh, HUMIT, right? Sometimes the stuff they produce is garbage too. Very often the stuff they produce is stuff that's already known. But because you don't know when you're going to produce the unknowns, you still have to collect even if there's a high take, you know, high percentage of the take that's not new, right? But in all the other intelligence fields, they didn't hold that against they, you know, that was normal. With us, they held it against us. Well, I was mm. going to ask you about that because there, there must have been people in the military who would ignore the results, just didn't like the concept. I would have thought, or the idea behind it. Robert Gates, poster <laughs> child for this. Robert Gates, former right. Secretary of Defense, former Director of the CIA. Now, and it's it's quite hard to argue against that, though, isn't it, from your point of view? Because if somebody has that view, it's, it's going to be an uphill struggle to convince them, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, I want to be clear. I mentioned Robert Gates. I actually respect him greatly. He was probably one of the best sec defs we ever had, probably one of the best CIA directors we ever had. Um, and I even I admire his work with the Boy Scouts, too. Um, sadly, the Boy Scouts have fallen on hard times, and it really isn't their fault, despite the news. Right. So, um, so Gates was a staffer on the National Security Council in 19, this would have been 1979. Okay. Now, I don't, I'm not saying this from primary information. I have heard these stories from the people who were there. Right. So, um, in 1979, the Soviets built this massive building on near the shore of one of their big seaports. And it looked like the kind of thing you'd build in an aircraft carrier. It was big enough to put one and a half U.S. fleet-sized carriers in it. That's massive, right? Um, and that's what the NSC thought was probably going on as they're building a carrier. But they, one of the staffers on the NSC, a, a naval captain named uh, uh, Jake Stewart, um, he knew about, he'd been read right onto the remote viewing program, and he thought, well, let's give these guys a try, because none of the other ints were giving them any information. They tried satellites, they tried signal intelligence, they tried human. They couldn't get any information as to what was actually going on inside that building. Right. So he said, well, we'll give the remote viewers a try, and he brought the tasking. And Joe McMonigle and Hartley Trent, I mentioned Hartley earlier, and Joe McMonigle is arguably probably not just the most famous, but probably the most effective military remote viewer we've ever had. Um, they were tasked on the inside of this building. I won't give you the whole rundown because I could go on for a while. 
um, I do actually, in, in the book I just showed you, right, I go into that actually fair amount inside there. I give all the pictures and all the sketches and all the results and all that stuff. So um, they reported ultimately, and again, I'll cut it the chase, this massive submarine, bigger than any other submarine ever been built. And Joe reported that the, uh, and this was a boomer, so this is one that fired ballistic missiles. The missile tubes were in front of the superstructure on the sub, what they call the sail. Um, and Gates had access to that report, and he knew where it came from, and he said, there's no way in hell they do this. This is just crazy. This is stupid, you know. And again, I'm I'm paraphrasing somebody who I didn't hear say it. I, I want right. to qualify that, right? But this is the sense of what I heard from the people who were informed about this. And, uh, and, and Gates said, this is not at all possible. This is ridiculous. And in fact, it doesn't make sense, at least at the time. Naval architects would tell you, you don't want to put the tubes, the missile tubes in front of the sail, because if they if you're behind the sail, at least there's some slipstream going by, right, when they're underwater. But if it's in front and you're bringing a leak in the seal or something, you know, it could sink your submarine. Right. So um, plus the, the theory was you couldn't fire missiles while you were underway, underway that way because you did have more of a weight coming back and it would affect the missile and all that stuff. Well, literally 10 months after Joe McMonagall and Hartley had reported their data and had been passed up the food chain to the NSC, the Soviets um, dug a channel. Apparently there was just dirt there, like like almost half a, half a kilometer of dirt, right? They dug a channel and floated out the Typhoon, which was the largest submarine ever built, bigger than any sub we've ever built, bigger than the Washington Monument, mm -hmm. and it, missile tubes were in front of the sail, exactly as Joe had described. So... It shows what often happens in, in, in operational remote viewing, at least with the military, is that um, we produced intelligence. They didn't know if the intelligence was legitimate or not, but because they knew what the source was, they dismissed it. Right. Right. And then later on, it found out to be true. Right? Now, there was a case where it absolutely made a massive difference in U.S. defense policy. Um, so there's this missile. Uh, it eventually became a... I blank on the name, but the MX missile at the time. The idea was they were going to take this missile and they were going to build this uh, shell game strategy out in the Great Basin of the United States. You're going to have these shelters, and then they they shuttle the missile from shelter to shelter. You know, have all these clusters of missiles. The idea being that you could put a hundred missiles out there. They were going to do more, but we'll say a hundred missiles out there, and you have a a setup with say ten missiles for that that or ten shelters for that one missile and you shuffle it around about, that gives the Soviets 10 times as many things to worry about because they don't know which particular shelter the missile's in, right? And they tried all kinds of things uh, to reverse it. We, our side, tried to see if there's any way the Soviets could defeat it. So they'd even do stuff like they glued little thermometers on the back of cockroaches and see if the cockroaches would be attracted <laughs> to the heat of the missile, the, the nuclear decay of the missile, whatever. You know, they tried all kinds of stuff. Well, um, the folks at SRI thought, well, if anybody can beat it, it would be the remote viewers. And so they set up an experiment with Charlie Tart, who's a, a, a widely known psychologist and parapsychologist, and they tasked a remote viewer on it. And the remote viewer was actually, I'm simplifying, it wasn't exactly, well, never mind, I'm just simplifying, okay. The psychic, well, let's say the psychic, um, worked on this project and using sophisticated error correction plus their input to where the missile might be hidden, 
they were able to find the location of the missile 100% of the time wow. in those shelters. And so that was brief to Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter said, well, he said he actually, uh, Senator Warner, Warner, we've had more than one Senator Warner, I can't remember which one this was. Don't think it's the one still serving, maybe this. And, and confirmed that, in fact, that was the point that moved him to cancel the missile, this missile program. It was very expensive. And the missile was still, uh, Peacemaker was called. They, they, the missile was still fielded, but put it in static shelters. They didn't do the, the shell game, which I think was absolutely the right decision on this for other strategic reasons I won't bore you with today. But, but it was because of remote viewing, it got canceled. And that was a major impact. That alone was probably worth the entire program, all 23 years of it and 20 million bucks. 25 wow. million, I think is probably more accurate. Um, there was one other case um, that very, they're very obvious. We do have confirmed feedback for involved also involved Jimmy Carter. So the Soviets had lost a, um, have you heard about the TU-22 that went down in Zaire? No. Yeah, nobody's told you the story yet. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so uh, the Soviets had outfitted a Tu-22 strategic bomber as a recce aircraft, a reconnaissance aircraft. It had all kinds of codes and ciphers and stuff on board. And the CIA had actually paid a Libyan pilot to steal it from a, a, an airfield in Libya and fly it down to South Africa. Well, somewhere over Zaire, the pilot panicked because he knew the KGB was probably going to be waiting for him. Wow. And he bailed out and left the plane on autopilot. And it flew on till it ran out of gas. Actually, it probably wasn't over Zaire. It was probably somewhere farther north in Africa. Ran out of gas and nosedived into the jungle, triple canopy jungle. Plane was actually vertical in between the trees. Nobody could find it. We targeted our satellites on there. The Russians were trying to find it. You know, everybody's looking for this plane, and they were all looking in the wrong part of the country. And uh, Dale Graf, who was a very important player in this uh, as well. Dale Graf uh, got uh, a tasking, and it probably wouldn't have, oh, it surprised me it was Jake Stewart again, but uh, in fact, it was Jake Stewart, now that I think about it, said, we're missing this plane, get your remote viewers on it, see if you can find it. So a remote viewer at SRI and a young Air Force enlisted woman named Rosemary Smith, which I'd love to find her, nobody knows where she is anymore. Rosemary Smith, Dale Graf gave the tasking to her and to the other guy, and the other guy described the setting perfectly, and she was given a map of Africa and said, and shown a picture of a Tu-22 and said, this plane is down somewhere in Africa and we need to find it. And whatever process she used, she drew a little pen, circled pen mark on a map inside here. And the aircraft was found inside that three square mile circle that she had drawn on the map. And Carter confirmed that in 1995 at the commencement for Emory University. Um, some student asked him, well, what was the most unusual thing that happened during your presidency? And he said, and, and you know, everybody was expecting to talk about being attacked by a killer bunny while he was in his canoe or, <laughs> or his UFO, you know, yeah, yeah. experience or whatever. But he didn't say, he mentioned any of that stuff. What he said was, well, and, and I'm paraphrasing again, he said, uh, when I was uh, in office, um, we lost an aircraft. He, he had forgotten by then it was a Russian aircraft, right? We lost an aircraft. And uh, they brought a psychic. They consulted a psychic, and she gave some latitude and longitude figures. And we pointed our satellites there and found the plane, okay? 
So he'd got it a little bit garbled, but I mean, we're talking more than well, 25 years later or something like that. Um, because it wasn't the satellites that found it. It was actually, they had a special ops team leave, going out from the American embassy in Zaire and going to that area. And as they came into the zone that, that Rosemary Smith had identified, they ran into natives bringing out pieces of airplane and they were able wow. to trace it back to the plane. Now, we don't know what happened to the coats. Who knows? You know? <laughs> but, uh, and they're not talking, even today, they're not talking about what the actual outcome was. But if the event was confirmed by a president of the United States. That's incredible. That's... Those are astonishing stories. So when you when you talk about that, what is the what explanation can you possibly give to say that this works? What's the scientific reason why this works? Because I can't even begin to understand. Well, there's this cartoon, maybe you've seen it. It shows Einstein standing at the board, at a blackboard, writing all these equations down, right? And then over here is, I don't know, his conclusion. And he gets down to here, and then the middle point between the conclusion and the, and the description is a, 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 just a couple of words. Then a miracle happens. Hmm. <laughs> so right. we don't know what makes remote viewing work. Okay, we, there are a lot of theories, they're not even theories, there's hypotheses and speculation out there. Um, and I'm going to tell you why this doesn't matter as much as you might think in a moment. So um, some people think that uh, maybe there's multiple dimensions involved, I, I tend to dismiss that idea, uh, for reasons, again, we don't, don't have time to go into. Um, other people think it might be quantum non-locality, and since your podcast has quantum in it, I assume you know what that means. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Quantum, quantum non-locality. <clears throat> I don't think that explains it either uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the standard uh, quantum entanglement, which is quantum locality, another name, quantum entanglement doesn't seem to support the kind of information transfer that you get with remote viewing. I say it doesn't seem to because we don't know anything about the universe yet, right? Yeah. But from all we know about quantum entanglement, it can't possibly explain this information transfer. The other thing quantum entanglement can't explain is that kind of information transfer cross time from yeah. the past and from the future. So I don't think that's a very strong contender here. I think that if anything, my hypothesis would be that, that consciousness is its own innate existent in the universe. Uh, that the universe is made up of consciousness and physical stuff and they can interact to a certain degree. And when remote viewing, we're using both of those together. And, and if you think about it, there's gotta be a physical component to remote viewing because our, our whole psychology, all of the, the mechanics in our brains have to translate whatever that signal is into something that we can express. Right. But how does that signal get in there? That's probably the non-physical part. Right. And and most scientists say, non-physical, I can't stand that. You know, that's impossible. Well, no, it's not impossible. I wrote a whole dissertation on why it's not. <laughs> so, so anyway. But yeah, so in other words, I don't have an answer to your question other than to add these speculations and considerations in. So. And, and I guess the fact that, as you alluded to there, that you can remote view across all space 
and time. That that slightly complicates things already, right? <laughs> it does. Yeah. Now, I should qualify that a little bit, and then i got to get back to the rest of the question I forgot to answer. Um, so past seems to be just as acceptable, accessible as present. Those two seem to, you know, roughly 70% of the time, a remote viewer will show that they've actually got stuff that could not they could not possibly have guessed or known in any other way. And roughly 35% of that, so in other words, half of that 70%, they should, they have really good results or, or surprisingly good results, okay? So um, present and past, we seem to be do equal, equally well. Future, we are horrible at, okay? Right. You, you think that, so whenever somebody, you tell somebody you're psychic and they want to know uh, one of two things. Well, maybe three things. What are the lottery numbers? Right? Yeah. Um, they want you to find something that's missing or someone that's missing, and they want you to predict the future, right? Those those two things, finding missing things and predicting the future, are the two hardest things for any psychic modality to do. Not just remote viewing, but any other psychic modality. But the reason we associate those two things with this behavior, or there's two reasons. One is because that's the only thing we've got, Right. And the other thing is that you only hear the successes. So we associate that with successfully predicting the future and finding things. But if you actually look at the, if you could look at the statistics, it's hard to do because people kind of hide their failures. It isn't good for business if they know that you're, (laughs) that you fail 10 times out of 11, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So anyway, that's it. So, um, yeah, so doing the future is really hard. Uh, there's one modality, which I also won't go into, called associative remote viewing, that actually gets it down to the, roughly the success level of present and past. But it's a very specialized approach, which maybe on another interview we can we can cover that. Yeah. But it's quite it's quite interesting, though, that the, what I'm interested in the statistics there of looking into the past, looking into the present, and then this gap to the future, that, that there seems to be something in that, right? Well, and I think what it is, and I'll argue this all the time, you get some people who think time is, you know, we live in a block universe, and therefore time is also part one of those blocks, right? Yeah. Time was like a two before, you just happened to be at a certain point along that two. Well, I don't know if they have two befores in England or not, do they? That's how they think of this block universe. So the time is fixed. So the future exists already, and the past exists. And it all depends on where your perspective is along that continuum. I think the fact that remote viewing doesn't actually work well at predicting an open future yeah. is because the future doesn't exist yet. I think this is evidence the future is not yet formed. And yeah. so when you get it right, there's, there's two cases. When you get the future right, it's probably because you picked your, your target is along a very deterministic kind of a thread. The future is partially deterministic, but not totally deterministic. And when you get it wrong, very often, if you're not just being wrong, period, and that happens in remote viewing, you get it wrong, you may have been targeted on a non-deterministic threat that goes into the future. And so the future doesn't exist fully yet, and that's why remote viewing it is a lot harder. It, that's my view. Well, that's quite interesting because I was talking earlier about the Mount Fuji test that Ben drew when I'd set him a target. And when we talked to Dad Smith about that, because the question I had was, I get that he could have remote viewed Mount Fuji and kind of walked around and felt and smelt and did all those things. What I didn't understand was Ben's drawing was in exactly the same perspective as the picture that I was looking at, which doesn't suggest that he was there. 
it's he seemed to be picking up on the image that I was looking at. And there are loads of pictures of Mount Fuji. You know, you can it's photographed from all angles, but he managed to tap into the one. And and Daz said, oh, what he did was see into the future when you revealed the picture to him. And I still can't quite get my head around that. I, do you agree with that? So if if you actually if you go to my website, I might as well tell you what that is. Yeah, yeah, do do. We'll put links to it in the description as well. Oh, that's good too. Yeah, it's rviewer.com. So R and then the word viewer. So R-V-I-E-W-E-R.com. If you go there and you look at remote viewing in depth, there's a click drop down menu, remote viewing depth, and go down to kinds of remote viewing or something, other kinds of remote viewing, something like that. They go off and there's a description of associative remote viewing there. And associative remote viewing, and I just mentioned that again, I won't go into great detail, but in that modality, you're trying to remote view your feedback. In an operational right. setting, you don't want to remote view your feedback because the analyst already knows what's in the picture. They want you to tell them what you what they don't know about, right? But in ARV, for very good reasons, you want to remote view your feedback. And so that actually was what I suspect was going on here. Okay. Is that Ben was remote viewing the actual image uh, that you know of that you were because you were acting as an outbounder for the image, if you think about it. Yeah. He was focusing mm-hmm. on what you were focusing on. And so that was the target, was that photo that you had in your hands or on your desk. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so let me go back several questions ago. Yep, go. (laughs) What makes it work? And I said it's a miracle. Let me explain the miracle a little bit in science terms, not the miracle itself, but how science also believes in miracles. So if you take the story of perception in general, and we'll go with visual perception, okay? So your eyes, they're photoelectric... uh, photoelectric optical sensors, right? The light comes in, the electromagnetic radiation comes in and pinches on the retinas. There are cells in the retinas that turn into electrochemical energy. The electrical impulses, the electrochemical impulses go back to the the visual centers in the brain. They get processed and then you see. Now that sounds like a complete story, but it isn't. Mm -hmm. Because between being processed in the visual centers and the actual experience of vision, we have no idea what goes on between those two places. The science glosses over it by pretending like that part isn't there, right? But they do not have any idea how vision works once they trace it to the visual cortex. Yeah. So the same thing with remote viewing. We can follow. We know what the initial uh, stimulus is. It might be the picture of Mount Fuji. We know what the process is. You're drawing a sketch roughly similar to what you saw, what the image was. But you don't know what's in the middle there, right? And nobody knows what's in the middle there, including in normal perception. So yeah. science is a little bit hypocritical when they condemn remote viewing for not having that middle story, and yet they themselves don't have their own middle story. Yeah, that's really interesting. Really interesting. So, so it's almost like we just have to, at the moment, accept what we don't understand and just know that it works. Almost treat it like a black box. Which is the story of science for the last 500 years. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It used to be that magnetism was like that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. They used it, but they had no idea what made it work. And now we have a, a, a fairly decent idea. There's still some holes in it, but a fairly decent story on knowing how it works. I'm expecting, I'm not so sure we'll do that with remote viewing because if it does involve a non physical thing, investigating with physical. Little processes are still not going to review to reveal what that miracle might be. 
which may be why we don't understand perception either. Maybe there's an actual miracle in there too. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about when, when the program ended, why, why, why did it end or did it end? Do you think it's still running? No, I don't think it is. Now, okay. doesn't mean that maybe somebody started up, I, and, and there's one exception. I think NSA might well still have a program. I knew they were playing around with it when we were there, and there's documentation that they were yeah, had, a, had a formal program of some kind. And there's no evidence that they actually canceled their program. There is evidence we canceled ours. Okay. Right. Now, the reason they, they shut it down, there, there was a couple reasons. One was, again, it was a signal-to-noise problem, right, that you couldn't count on your remote viewing always being accurate. And like I said, they didn't hold that against the other intelligence uh, processes, but they did against us. So, so that was one. But the other one was there's a lot of uh, bureaucratic infighting between people who really believed in it and thought we ought to pursue it and people who were totally biased against it and didn't want to pursue it. And that, the, as, you know, as you read Reading the Enemy's Mind, you'll see it's a history of, of winning, winning and losing that battle right, right. As, it, as it went along. And finally, in 1995, we lost it. And the reason was because the people who'd been proponents either retired or passed away. And the people who were detractors were left holding the battlefield, so to speak. Uh, and you can imagine why this would be a problem. It's because uh, in a bureaucracy, people who succeed in a bureaucracy tend to be institutional thinkers. They tend to like having things in their neat little niches, you know, and, and things that, that don't make sense. They don't like, they're uncomfortable with that. So those are just the wrong kind of people to actually to be supporting a program like this. I don't fault them for that because they do a lot of good work. But I do fault them in this case because they don't have the imagination to realize at the level of investment this was. I mean, one one, um, F-35 today costs about five, well, I don't know what the latest figures are, but somewhere between five and ten times, just one fighter, five and ten times, than the entire 23-year remote viewing program yeah from that perspective it's it's totally it's peanuts right they didn't have the imagination to realize that so when it came time uh the program was at dia when a general named soyster became the director of dia the defense intelligence agency which is the military version of the cia so soyster had been the general officer who had come into the remote taken over the army higher headquarters that owned the remote viewing program and canceled it. He canceled the remote viewing program, shipped it off to DIA to get it out of his hair. You don't want anything to do with it. So he gets in as director at DIA says, is that program? What happened? Did I inherit that stupid thing? You know? And, uh, and he was, he was trying to get rid of it several times, but he couldn't because there were five key senators and a number of congressmen who really believed in it. Amongst those senators was John Glenn, who's, who's a legend, right? And uh, oh. and uh, Cohen, uh, I'm blanking on his first name all of a sudden, Cohen, who'd been the Secretary of Defense after he was a senator, and uh, a couple of other, Jan- Daniel Inouye. So it was it was actually Republican and, and Democrat. It's one thing that Republicans and Democrats agree on, right? So those guys supported the program, so Soyster couldn't kill it. Well, he hatched on this plan. Yeah, there was. It's more complicated than this anyway. But they hatched on a plan to transfer it to DIA to CIA. The problem was that the director of the CIA was Robert Deutsch, who was famously anti-remote viewing. Anytime anybody came in to brief him on the program when he was a, well, I get this wrong, but I think he was a 
undersecretary of defense for R&D or something, you know, years before he was CIA director, um, he, they would come in, you find out what the, what the subject matter was, he'd kick him out of his office. He wouldn't even listen to anybody. Wow. So he was the director of the CIA at the time this was transferred to the CIA. Right. And the irony is, is that, yes, we're transferring to the CIA, effective 30 June 1995. Okay, so the transfer is effective 30 June 1995, and the CIA directed to be canceled on 30 June 1995. They never accepted. They accepted ownership of the program. They ne- never accepted operation of the program. And the interesting thing is you'll hear in the media. Sorry, I'm on a soapbox. Can you tell? No, no, go for it. <laughs> you'll hear in the media They'll say, well, the CIA proved the remote viewing didn't work. Well, they based that on a, the report that the CIA commissioned from the American Institutes of Research, who hired a bunch of skeptics to do the evaluation. And sure enough, in there, there's a couple of passages that says, we were never able to, uh, it, it, we have established, or, or words of that fact, that remote viewing was never used to drive any important policy decisions. It was never used, it was never valuable as an intelligence resource. And I've already told you a couple of cases where it was, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so they just dismissed those cases, right? They said it was never used as a, as a remote viewing or as an intelligence source, okay? Um, successfully as an intelligence source. But here's the interesting thing. They only looked at 40 out of almost 3,000 operational missions. 40 out of 3,000. They only looked at 10 out of roughly 150 full experiments that they'd done and drew their conclusions based on this tiny insignificant amount of information about the program. Now, in any scientific circle, that would be dismissed as junk science right there. But the really telling thing to this alleged thing that showed remote union work was that they didn't even start this report until a month after they had canceled the program. Right. Right. So the CIA had never intention of all they wanted was a whitewash to show Congress to tell them why they canceled it. So it was a post hoc justification for a decision they had already made. Gosh, I don't really know what to make of that. That's extraordinary. So it it sort of speaks to uh, an inherent bias, right? Mm hmm. W- w- and the which... majority, the majority of decision makers at DOD and the scientists in the world have that inherent bias. That's why this has been such an uphill struggle. Well, that, in fact, to some degree, our own community is at fault as well, because the remote viewing community per se and the psychic community at large, they're kind of like that character in Harry Potter that they believe 13 impossible things before breakfast. You know? right, right. <laughs> um, we get all the sensationalism, all these claims and stuff. And I, I think you may have had some folks on, so I'm probably going to step on toes, but a lot of the claims about UFOs and about, you know, ultra uh, other dimensions, all this stuff, it's just crap. It's, it, it, it is not established even by remote viewing. And as you know, remote viewing isn't that act isn't all that accurate. It isn't perfect. Right. So you can't, you can't make assumptions about things people say that they remote viewed. And yet it happens all the time. And mainstream scientists who might otherwise be sympathetic to this will look at this nonsense, the noise that's out there, and it obscures the reality of remote viewing, and it turns them off before they will ever examine it. And it, it acts as just a level of noise that that is getting in the way of remote viewing becoming a much more enhanced part of our culture. And I and I guess that's that's something that the the 
the military program had that kind of discipline do you think that's do you think that's being lost over time and increasingly lost well that was the beauty of of SRI's original findings about that they were trying to explore this without any of the metaphysical baggage that people normally attach to psychic behavior, right? Yeah, so in yeah. other words, you didn't need spirit guides, you didn't need to channel it, you didn't need some kind of, you know, structure to the spiritual universe or anything like that. You just follow human perception, what we understood about that and, and, and the actual hard results they were producing, and that's all you needed. You didn't need to have this backstory that, you know, all this cultural baggage that comes with anything whenever you say you're psychic or whatever. Mm. They got rid of all that crap, which is why they're so successful. And unfortunately, now there's an attempt to smuggle all that back into remote viewing now that it's in the popular world. Mm-hmm. You can see I don't have an opinion about this. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to come back to you. you. You mentioned, you know, Soviet Union and Russia and stuff like that. And we, we've heard that the Russians had a similar program. Is that true? And have you ever met any of your... Russian counterparts at the time? It is true, but I've never met any of the folks that were in that program. But in terms of people that want to try this themselves, you've also written a book about how to just kind of get started, right? Yes. And did you do that because, well, I know you've always stated this is something that everybody can do, but... Do, do you feel like it should be democratized a bit more, do you? Well, I don't know how it could survive any more democratizing. <laughs> it's become such you know a widely discussed thing, and everybody's got their opinion about it, whether it's a legitimate opinion or not. And you get, there's probably, there's now dozens and dozens of people who are teaching remote viewing, and half of them took one class and decided that that qualified them to be a teacher, you know. And, right, right. and uh, yeah, you really got to be careful about that because there are people out there with no experience at all. Some people not even have any experience in remote viewing or teaching remote viewing. They think remote viewing has something to do with spirit guides, you know. And, right. Uh, so you've got to be really careful. In fact, that's what this book is about. Essential Guide to Remote Viewing, The Secret Military. I'm trying to read this uh, mirror image. <laughs> Remote viewing, or, uh, remote perception skill, anyone can learn. Yes, okay. So <laughs> the point of this book was to fill a niche in the literature. You had all kinds of people's memoirs. Most of them were done from memory, and so they were really checkered. Uh, they remembered facts wrong. They made facts up, you know, stuff like that. You had all these memoirs. You had a couple of pretty good books. Joe McMoneagle's uh, Remote Viewing Secrets is a pretty good book, if you avoid the memoirs. Um, no, it's, it's actually, uh, in fact, it's a really good book, I have to say. Uh, he and I only disagree about one thing in that book. He says you can't learn remote viewing in there, and I say you can, and I have plenty of evidence that you can, right? But otherwise, in fact, it's kind of odd why that even book exists if you can't learn it, because he tells you how to do it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, this book fills a niche. It's not a memoir. I have a couple of snippets in that I talk a bit about my recruitment and all that, but they're all in there to make points about remote viewing itself. And I talk about the science behind remote viewing, a more fuller answer than I was able to give you guys. Talk about history of remote viewing, talk about different kinds of remote viewing people are practicing today. And I talk about how to do it. Now it's not a full-blown course. There's two chapters on actually how to do a simple remote viewing, including an outbounder actually. Um, and then I have a chapter on how to how to judge a good teacher, you know, how to pick a teacher uh, to help keep you from getting the wrong teacher, which is really easy to do today. 
Right. Um, so anyway, there's a lot more in that book. I try to cover every every thing that people might have a question about in remote viewing uh, in that book. So it's a survey, kind of a survey of the field. Well, we we always put out a, a photo album on Facebook that accompanies the episode. So we'll put we'll put links to uh, your books in that album as well, so people can kind of get them directly linking to to the. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's, um, it's, it's meant to answer all of these questions in a non-sensational way. When we were speaking to Daz, we got into a bit of a conversation about, um, I guess I think you would probably call them anomalous targets. So your Roswell and stuff. And that is something that always piques everyone's interest Hence the sensationalism, right? Oh, yeah, I know, I know. But everyone wants the truth from those things. What What's the most surprising truth that you've ever remote viewed? You mean in terms of anomaly targets? Yeah. Oh, I'd say I don't know because I don't know what's true and what isn't. Right, because you can't get any feedback. Right. Um, right. I've had some really interesting experiences with anomaly targets. Um, I suppose... I I worried asking you that question because it's a bit like asking a comedian to tell them a joke. It's sort of, (laughs) it it felt like it was in the same category. But I just wanted to ask whether there was something where you'd been set a target and you'd responded and then you found out what the target was and you went, blimey, I didn't know that's what I was looking at. You know, we don't probably have time for the details and we'd come on sometime uh, maybe and do that in another future event. But, um, Ingo Swan actually asked me to remote view the moon for him. I mean, he was working on a project on the far side of the moon. And although I can't attest to the results I got, because again, remote viewing isn't hundred percent and it is subject to imagination and all that stuff. Um, I got stuff I would never have expected to have gotten about that. And I'll leave that as a teaser, <laughs> but I, it actually, Whoa. um, correlated with other stuff that people had got in their sessions as well so that is i mean there's always this thing called telepathic overlay which i also won't go into but uh but generally speaking i didn't feel like this was telepathic overlay and yet they were getting the same kind of stuff i was and that was thought-provoking so um i've actually become where i would have totally dismissed the idea that there was anything really novel about the moon i kind of changed my mind about that i think that there's things we really should look into you know uh having to do with the moon so i don't know we'll see you know the the next maybe maybe it'll be the chinese that do it but the next manned mission to the moon you know maybe we'll find out stuff we didn't expect to find out blimey that's a cliffhanger if ever i've heard one (laughs) oh that's so brilliant well We'd love to get you back on because there's loads. I mean, I've still got loads on my list I'd love to talk to you about. So we'd love to get you back on at some other point. There's dowsing. There's all kinds of stuff that I really wanted to to go through. So um, it'd be great to have you to come back at some point if uh, if you've if you've ever got time to do that. That would be fantastic. But like I said when we started, I like to talk. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, brilliant. Well. Paul, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been absolutely fascinating. It's, that it's was been amazing. a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for giving oh, us Well, you time. are welcome. So that is a really candid look at how something paranormal actually has 
an impact on people's everyday lives because although it seems like you know his his impact was on the US military the US military has such a uh, a scope of impact on the rest of the world that his views and what he did through his remote viewing uh, just it it impacted everybody it impacted on peace treaties it impacted on the way the US approached the UN and it impacted on how the Cold War came to an end which is quite an extraordinary yeah. thing yeah I mean it's amazing you know those stories about President Carter you know that it, it's at that level that this thing got to and I, and I think when we did our first look, I think we said in the interview, it was kind of a, a naive reel, looking back on it, investigation of the, the, the Project Stargate and the starting of remote viewing. But, I mean, what struck me was just, you know, there's some really serious names right. that Paul mentioned there. Yeah. Really serious names that, you know, we're talking presidents, we're talking senior people within the political structure of... Washington and the US it's mind-blowing really when you think about I mean we were always like god this was kind of a military you know massive thing and it went for all this time but it, and it involved psychics but it, it really struck me it really brought it to home because I almost had this vision of them they were a little unit doing their thing and they were having all these results but were people taking it seriously but when you hear Paul said you know go and have a try and find this plane because we've lost it and you know, all these things, the missile silo or, or moving the missiles around, that story, you realise that this had big impacts. Yeah. Of real-life impact, not just some guys doing some some interesting work in a in a sub-office, if that makes sense. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So this is... So the, I think this is one of those things where um, what we've been looking for in the journey of this podcast is kind of um evidence that uh something paranormal can have a real world impact and can be provable and everything that paul said is backed up by real knowledge and you yeah. know uh you know real spymanship or wh whatever it's called so it it's very hard to discount the fact that this is not real. I, I thought the other interesting thing was his his kind of approach and attitude towards it. It's almost like... I, I, it's too cliche to say it was a military militaristic approach because he, he's, he's a more complex person than that, but... The, this topic or, or the paranormal is often seen about seen in a cliched way of kind of you know ghosts in white sheets and people going woo and uh, can you hear me not once you know all that stuff hmm. but but I think what fascinates both of us I think about remote viewing is generally it's got this angle that doesn't seem like that and Paul for me and that interview's reinforced it of I thought it was really interesting when you were we're asking him about, you know, 
the 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 kind of more stereotypical paranormal stories of well we want to know what's going on in Roswell and and all that stuff he was like I I, I don't know what I saw because I don't know if I can prove it and it's he's very straight down the line about that stuff and yeah. I thought that was really interesting and refreshing in a way yeah no absolutely absolutely and I think the other thing about it is that um we've been able to experience what he's been talking about in a very low level way we've done the experiment we know that there is something in it and uh i think the next step on that we've spoken about it before but um daz has set us a challenge that that's true actually talking of daz before we go on to the challenge i think that what another bit that's really interests me about the whole topic is the uh is ingo swan and how people stick the core people that we spoke to people like daz and paul obviously because he was there but daz also a lot of that came out from his the interview we did with daz smith is the discipline of what was originally set up and the purity of that as a technique and a way of doing it that seems to be driven into people who seem to be really good at this thing yeah which i think is quite is another interesting point you know it's not people uh running around and you know using hyperbole every now you know that you know what i mean there's a discipline certainly to what paul was saying but also it came across in the daz interview as well this discipline of what was originally set up and developed as a as a almost scientific approach to this as a as a a topic and an exercise the signal versus the noise i like that yeah yes yes daz has set us a task how are you feeling about that so so just just so you know when we last time we spoke uh, and we did our interview with Daz Smith. He said he was going to set us uh, a target for us to have another go at um, trying our remote viewing skills. Uh, so Ben and I have got the same target. We just got a number sent via <laughs> by a very cryptic email with just the number on it. And we've got to sit down and do it. But I have to confess, it's been sat in my um, inbox for a while. We, what Ben and me, uh, uh, what we're both going to do is record it separately so we don't influence each other yeah. in, uh, in any way. So we're going to re- record our experience of trying uh, Daz's target. Um, I'm really nervous about it. I've always not wanted... I've got a mixture of thinking about it all the time and not trying to think about it. And there's something about me... I'm. I'm scared to do it. I yeah. don't know why that is. Well, I think it's about that signal versus the noise because I've thought about that number that he sent and I've thought about that email a lot and it, it tends to come into my mind when I'm, you know, in the bath, in the shower, falling asleep and I've got some... Yeah, I've had it in the bath. Yeah, I've got some real solid thoughts about what it is and me too i've the the whole thing about not letting your own consciousness override what it is that Mm. you're picking up it's really really hard yeah i mean we'll talk about this more when we do it but 
I've had exactly the same things as you and the same feelings. But it it's so extraordinary that it's it's something that everybody can get involved with and I I find that extraordinary and like the the fact that it's possible to do this still blows my mind and the fact that there's no scientific explanation for it as well is extraordinary and uh, i'll be really uh interested to see how we get on with daz's target because as as peter says we've we have no idea what it might be it's just a number and we're going to do it as you know completely blind we're not going to try and say that it is any particular thing or place we're just going to try and describe it and then we're going to give those raw descriptions to daz and and see see how we get on with with no training with no preconceptions with nothing yeah i mean i actually after we finished the interview uh with paul uh he he also gave us a few kind of tips so um we're gonna we're gonna put those into practice um as well so that episode i don't know we're just uh we're that that'll be a few weeks away so we'll give you a shout when when we've done our uh our target and uh we've got feedback and we can talk to daz about it but um for today i really want to thank paul for coming on it was just so fascinating um and he was very open and uh shared so much with us so thanks once again to paul yeah Smith for, agreed for coming on today agreed. we really appreciate it exactly um well we'll see you next time on the quantum mechanics see you next time Quantum mechanics.